Beloved, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible provided for you there, or should be, in the seat back in front of you. That's page 984. We would love for you to follow along with us, to see God's word, put your hand on God's word as we're following along. I'm at the age, and maybe so are you, that you can look back on pictures of yourself in high school and college and recognize that you don't wear the same clothes that you used to. Uh... I was talking to the chairman of our deacons yesterday, and we were talking about this very thing, Mr. John Lovett, and he was telling me that he used to sit in high school and pull down his hair and chew on his hair. All of us have developed and grown and began to put on new clothes. If you have not done that yet, you're either in high school or college, and one day you will, I promise you. And if you're looking at me, an old man going, you have no idea the shirt I have on will be uh, in style forever. I hope that you are the first generation where that is true. But the clothing that we're talking about today is eternal clothing. It's the clothing that never goes out of style because it is based in the very character of our God. And these are the things that we want to put on as Christians. And as we talked about last week, there were clothing and old selves uh, practices that we want to put off. These are the vices of the Christian life, the sin that so easily entangles us. But this week, as we get into God's word, we'll see that there are not just things that we put off, but there's actually virtues that we put on that allow us to represent the very identity that is true of us. That identity is that we are Christ, that our lives are hid with Christ in God. And this is good news. So look with me in Colossians chapter uh, 3, verse 12. I'll read the scriptures over us today. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. And these are the things we're going to be talking about today as we put on this new self, this new identity that we have in Christ. A main point for you today to direct us throughout this sermon is this. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we are to put on the characteristics consistent with our new identity. That we would be ruled by Christ in all we do. There's three kind of sub-points that will guide our time today. The first one's going to be found in verse 12. We want to be encouraged. Before we know what to put on, let's be encouraged, first and foremost, that God loves us. It's found right there in verse 12. Then Paul gets to the characteristics that we are to put on, and we want to be diligent to do so, and that's found in verses 12 through 14. These are the characteristics of Christ, and since we belong to him, We then follow his example. 
And then lastly, we'll look at verses 5 through 17, and is, has already been discussed in the, in the service today. With hearts of thanksgiving, we want Christ to rule and reign in all that we do. In everything that we say, in every action that we give, in every song that we sing, Christ is to rule in our hearts. And just kind of to gather us around the scripture this morning, when we're talking about these things that we're to put on, it's never without the congregation in mind. The vices have to do with individual behaviors. But as we put on these virtues, and we're able to because of the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we do this together. And so I want that to kind of drive as an undercurrent as we look at the text today. So look with me in verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So before he says what it is that we are to put on, look at that powerful little phrase, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That brings us to our first point today from the text, which is this, be encouraged, beloved, that God loves you. Be encouraged that God loves you. Before he tells us what to do, Paul reminds the Colossians, he reminds the church that God loves the church. It's the indicative that sets up the imperative, if you're an English major. This is the great truth in which we are to operate in. We belong to him. And this belonging is meant to encourage us in the Christian life. Look what it says, we're chosen, we're holy, we're beloved. This might not be how you feel today, but this is what is true about you. What does it mean that you are chosen by God? What does it mean to be chosen by God? Well, first and foremost, this is a theme that we find throughout the entire scriptures. The Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, God chooses a people for himself. God chose Abraham, and through Abraham, he chooses Israel. We see this in Psalm 105. We see this in Isaiah 45. We see in so many different places that he sets a people for himself by his own choosing. We don't always know how or what that process looked like. We just know that it was based in the foundation before the foundation of the earth. In his own foreknowledge, in his own wisdom, he made this decision. Ephesians 1 says, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Beloved, every religion in the world makes you put on virtues before you are loved. But the gospel that we believe believes in the God that chose us and who loved us first so that we can then love. And we're to rest in this truth. This is who our God is, and this is who our God is for us. He also calls us saints, which is a further qualifier. We see that he sets us apart. This is how he begins the whole letter in Colossians 1. Verses 1 and 2, he says, this is to the saints at Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters. Saint simply means set apart, holy. I love what Deuteronomy 7, 6 says about this. For you, Israel, are a holy 
people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for who? His treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He has chosen us. He has made us holy. He sanctified us by the suffering of the Son, which happened outside the city gates. As we see in Hebrews 13, we are sanctified as his holy people by Christ. This is who we are. And then he calls us beloved. He calls us his loved ones. He loves you. He loves you. He loves his people, the church. In Romans 9.25, he calls us his loved ones. So we're chosen, we're set apart, we're holy, and we're loved by God. And this is meant to encourage our hearts. We often like to skirt around the idea of chosen, which another uh, way to say it would be election. Because we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know what to do with it. But let's not ignore the fact that it says in the scripture that God chose us, and it's meant to be an encouragement. Paul could have just said, put on then the virtues, but he reminds them, this is who you are, chosen, beloved, and holy. There's a great illustration that might be of help to us by the good Bible teacher Barnhouse out of Philadelphia. He says, imagine the cross of Christ, a huge cross, and at the very base of that cross, there's a door. And at the top of that door, it says, whosoever will may come, which is, is, which is from Revelation twenty two seventeen. The gospel is meant for every tribe, nation, and tongue. We proclaim his name to the nations. This is what we do. We don't hold back the gospel to anyone because we don't know who God has chosen. We deliver it to everyone. And those who receive the gospel by faith then enter through that door. And John 10 tells us that Christ is the door. And when we get on the other side of that door, we look back. And atop the door, it says, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Selection or election is best understood in hindsight. When we look back and see, my goodness, God has given me this gospel. He has chosen us. He loves us. And this is meant to encourage us. This is a comfort to us. There's just two quick applications that I want us to consider from this today. The first is this. Take captive the thought that God does not love you. If you ever come in your mind to think that God does not love you, Paul tells us elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 to take captive that thought. Because this is what he says of you, beloved. You are loved. Don't ever think either. Take captive this thought that you have to do something in order to earn God's love. You can't. This was set before the foundation of the world and it's, and, it's, and it's firm and fixed in Jesus the Lord. The second thing is this. To pray to the one who sets people apart. If there is a friend or a loved one or a family member that doesn't know the resurrected Lord, pray to the one who sovereignly is working all things together for good. God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then there is no reason for us to pray to him. But the fact that God is sovereign and powerful over all things, then no one is outside the bounds of God's grace. And so we pray and we ask God to do a work in people's hearts. That's why we proclaim the gospel every week. If you are not a Christian, I want to make it known to you that we are preaching to you that you would believe in this Christ. 
So this is comfort, knowing this is who we are in Christ. Now, what are these characteristics that are consistent with this new identity? Well, he goes into that in verse 12. He says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He goes on with two participles, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, we forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, we put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And this is where we get our second point today. Be diligent to put on his characteristics. His meaning Christ's characteristics. What have, we have just described here and read here in verses 12 through 14 is describing the body of Christ, those who belong to him. So we put off the old self and then we put on the new self. Be who you already are, which is holy, as we talked about last week. Now, what exactly are these new garments, these new clothes that he's talking about? Well, look with me in verse 12. The first he lists is compassionate heart. This is a deep compassion for people. At the very seat of your human emotion, you care for the needs of others, particularly those who are in difficult circumstances. And we're able to understand what this is like when we interact with Christ and we realize that he has been compassionate towards us. We found ourselves alienated and hostile in mind and he came to us and he showed compassion to us. And therefore we can be compassionate. We can weep with those who weep. We can mourn with those who mourn. We're supposed to put this garment on. We're supposed to put on the garment of kindness. This is a fruit of the spirit as listed in Galatians 5. Think of acts of benevolence and even acts of benevolence and charity towards those who do not, uh, who do not, uh, I guess, shouldn't, shouldn't even receive it. Like, shouldn't even be willing uh, or, or deserving to receive it. This is the type of benevolence that we want to show people. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy, it's the same word for kind, the yoke of Christ is kind. We understand kindness because Christ has given us kindness, which has actually led to our salvation. This is Titus 3, 4 says this. So when we talk about kindness, we know what kindness is because Christ has been kind to us. That means we have no reason to be harsh. We, we have no reason to be rude or severe because Christ has been kind to us. If you are a leader in any way and you're leading people, let this be a word for you. You are to be compassionate and kind because Christ has been kind to you. If you're a husband who's leading his family, are you known by your severity or are you known by your kindness? Remember the kindness that has been offered to you in Christ Jesus. He then goes on and says humility. Humility suggests the opposite of self-centeredness. At the very core of humility, it's recognizing that you are not Lord, and it's recognizing that Christ is Lord. So that's kind of where we start as the Christian, recognizing that Christ is Lord, and from there we know and can be humble. If you are not the sovereign king of the universe, then let's just step back and rest in the fact that we're not. And that should breed humility within us. I love the book Mere Christianity written by C.S. Lewis. He says, the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility at all, for he will not be thinking about himself at all. 
The humble person doesn't think of himself. There's a false humility that Paul is warning against. He brought this up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. These false teachers had the appearance of wisdom. They talked about virtue, but the reality was it was self-made. These things that Christ is talking about is true, deep humility, resting in him, recognizing that we aren't able to save ourselves and we need him, which allows us to have a humble posture. And we see this perfectly demonstrated in that beautiful little hymn in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul writes. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, church family, which means it's possible to have the mind of Christ. And here's the mind of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped. Grasped by who? Grasped by the church. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Christ do? He recognized that we wouldn't get it, that we wouldn't get his equality with the Father. So he came in the form of a servant and he bowed himself down and he served us in our need so that we would understand the gospel. That is a perfect example of what we are to do. We are to come to people, recognize their need, and serve them with all humility. He then goes on into meekness. Think of the phrase gentle and lowly, okay, which is a great book, by the, by the way. The meek inherit the earth, it says in Matthew 5. 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul refers to meekness of Christ. That's what he's entreating the church with in, in terms of believing the gospel. Now, meekness in our day... Uh, might mean weakness, but biblically speaking, meekness does not mean weakness. It means strength under control. Uh, think of a velvet hammer, heavy, dense, understanding the truth, yet soft to the touch. This is what meekness is, rooted and built up in Christ. And then he goes on to say patience, which is another fruit of the Spirit, Think of God, how God is patient with you. How many times you've returned to the same sin. How many times you've not chosen to believe in him when you should or you ought. Yet God in his kindness reminds you every single week of the gospel of Christ. This is patient. And we turn this on. The opposite of patience is impatience. Which if we think about it, I was thinking about this. What is impatience? Well, it's questioning God's timing and it's questioning his ways. And it's putting our timing and our ways in place of that. But sitting back and recognizing who God is. This is, beloved, this is who Christ is. When we read this list of, of things, this is who Jesus is. So if you want to know Christ, if you want to walk with Christ, then study these characteristics. Because these are the characteristics of your Lord and Savior. This is who he is. And this is what we are called to be as the church by putting these on. Beloved, write these on a note card and put it in your Bible as a bookmark. And return to it and ask God to make you into these. To pray that he would allow you to be this more and more. Put it on your mirror. These characteristics. Put it on your mirror as you're brushing your teeth. Lord God, would you allow me to be meek and patient today? Would your spirit fill me up so that I would have the mind of Christ towards everybody that I come in contact with? 
And would you, would, when you're dwelling with people and you're living life with people, would you see these characteristics on display in them and would you point them out? Brother, I, I've seen you grow in patience. I've seen how you were meek towards the brother right there. Would, would you point these out? That's a real helpful way to flourish and allow for the, for the spirit of God to flourish the giftings amongst the body. Now, I recognize that these things aren't necessarily profound in our culture today. Our culture celebrates tolerance, power, charisma, emotion, all of these things. These things are much more subtle. But this is the way of our Lord. And we follow our Lord because he saved us to do so. So these are the things that we put on. Thinking about this in an illustration, you can take this list of things and you can place it over any area of the scriptures that's describing the life of Jesus. And you will see these things on display. I'll give you an example. In, in Mark chapter 8, just a few verses there, it's talking about a blind man who's healed by Jesus. And they're in the city of Bethsaida and a group of people rush this blind man up to Jesus. And they're begging him to heal this brother. And Jesus is so meek and patient and gentle. He is care, he's caring towards this brother in this, in this little episode. He takes the brother by the hand and he leads that brother outside the city walls. And he does a very loving thing. He spits in the brother's eyes and he wipes the brother's eyes. And he says, in the most sweet way, what do you see? And the brother said, I see men, but they look as trees. And so Jesus puts his hand on the man, and he finishes the miracle, completes the miracle. Well, he has a compassionate heart towards this man because he provides mercy to this man. He serves this man in his greatest need. He shows humility to this man because he's not asking this man to serve him, but he's instead serving this man in his need. He shows kindness to this man because this man is a sinner and he doesn't deserve the compassion that's been given to him, yet he does it anyway. He shows meekness because, do you see what he's doing? He grabs him by the hand. He asks him the gentle question, what do you see? And the man is just following along in his weakness, in his meekness. But his meekness is rooted in the truth because Jesus knows the whole time, I can heal you. I have the power to make you sick. He shows patience because this mob comes into Bethsaida and they're begging Jesus to do something. And so Jesus, in his very patient way, says, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it in my way, in a way that's best. We see the characteristics of Christ on display in him. This is true. Anywhere you look throughout the scriptures, are these applications, are these attributes, are they true of you in your own life? This requires us to consider more about someone else than ourselves. I have a question for you. Are you more of a here I am person or a there you are person? And here's, here's what I mean. When you come to a lunch with a friend or a group of people, are you ready and eager to talk more about yourself, your blessings, the infractions that have been happening against you, uh, all the things that are going on in your life, or are you more eager to be a there-you-are person, to get inside of someone's life and to recognize how you can serve them with all humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, pointing them always to Christ? 
You could, I guess, be a third person, which is I don't talk much about myself and I don't care about other people. But I, I think most of us fall in those two categories. You can have an application of this right after this service. When we gather in here and then we slowly kind of always move out to the quad over here. Are you a here, you are, here I am person or a there you are person? Ask yourself that question. This is how you put on the characteristics. Making sure that you're caring more for another. And then see, uh, see what he says in verse 13. Bearing with one another. If uh, one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So these two participles, we bear with one another and we forgive one another. Well, what does bear mean? Well, that has that idea of long-suffering. Uh, but you have to be in proximity together. You have to know one another to bear with one another. You know what bear actually means in our day? It means you got to put up with one another. You got to put up with one another. Uh, beloved, we're a mixed bag of nuts in this congregation. We just are. Uh, Y'all, there are difficult people in the church. Y'all, I am a difficult person in the church. Y'all are difficult people in the church, and we have to bear with one another. We have to recognize that there is an intentionality why God put us together. It's to make us mature. It's to learn these, these virtues together because nobody has it figured out. So we bear with one another. Look also, that second participle, we forgive one another. Verse 13, when there is a complaint against another or when someone has sinned against another... Paul says you must forgive as you have been forgiven. He always takes us back to the cross. If you notice that about Paul's theology, he's always reminding you, hey, you need to forgive because remember you've been forgiven at the cross. It was nailed to the cross. All, your, all the sins against the Lord were nailed there. He always takes us back to the cross. I love Matthew 18. There's this great little parable of the unforgiven servant. And this master has a servant come to him with a debt he cannot pay. And the debt is uh, 10,000 talents, which is the equivalent of 60 million days of work. A, a, a debt you cannot work off. How about, let's just put it that way, right? And the master is merciful to forgive this man's debt. Well, the man who had been forgiven also has a servant under him. And that man has a, a debt against the first servant and that debt is 100 denarii, which is the equivalent to 100 days' work. But he doesn't forgive him. So the one who has been forgiven an unaccomplishable, uh, that's a word, debt, is unwilling to forgive the one who has sinned against him. Are you a greater judge than Christ? Uh, do you, have you been more offended than Christ? Uh, beloved, we have all sinned against each other, but the payment of our debt against one another is just the equivalent of 100 days' work. We should be able to forgive that easily because 60 million days of work have forg been forgiven against us. It should never be rotting inside of us the inability to forgive. And I want us to think about that. So notice how he finishes all this little section up, verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
So we put on love. We put on compassion and kindness and patience, but the fabric of it all is love. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the crown virtue. The greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13. It's love that fulfills the law, Romans 13. It's Paul's aim to the entire church in 1 Timothy 1.5. To fulfill the law looks like loving God and loving neighbor, Matthew 22. In fact, it says in 1 John 4 that you cannot love God if you do not love neighbor. So what is love? Well, it's all the things that we've talked about. It's caring more about someone else more than you care about yourself. Love is giving of self for the good of others. It has the idea of dying to self and self-denial. It's patient. It's kind. It bears with one another. Beloved, this is the description of the church. We are a bunch of imperfect people who are being formed into the maturity of Christ. And because Christ has saved us, we put these things on and we live together in holy matrimony. This is what we do. We, we, we walk in these things together. And it's going to get, it's kind of get ugly and gross. And sometimes we got to deal with each other's sin. But guess what? This is what we're called to do in Christ. I love the story of this wife who's, who's a Christian and her husband's not a Christian. It's actually a true story. And uh, she's at home and her husband is with his buddies getting, um, drinking a lot at the local tavern. And he has this great idea with all of his buddies, like, hey, let's go home and let's have my, my wife cook us a meal. She'll do it. And so they all come home, and he says, honey, cook, cook a meal, and, and she cooks the whole meal. She serves all the guys that come home. And this strikes one of the guys who has said, I can't believe we've been so unreasonable with you, yet you've served us so kindly. And this is what she says, sir, my husband and I were married And when we were married, we were both sinners. It has pleased God to call me out of that dangerous condition. My husband continues in it, and I tremble for his future state. Were he to die as he is, he would be miserable forever, so I think it my duty to render his present existence as comfortable as possible. Not long after that, her husband actually came to Christ. The point of it is, is she recognized her former state, she was a sinner. And then she recognized that she had an encounter with the risen and crucified Christ, the the crucified and risen Lord. And it changed her perspective. She could be kind and patient towards him because she had received the very same from the Savior. Beloved, this is us. This is us. So we must know who Christ is towards us so that we know how to be towards our brother and our sister. Now, Paul goes on to list some further practices on how we are to do this. He gives some actually some applications for us in in 15, 16, and 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, thanks, with a thankful hearts in, uh, in your hearts to God. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks 
to God the Father through him. Do you see that theme of thanksgiving? It's in 15, 16, and 17. Everything that we're to do, letting Christ dwell in us, the peace of Christ dwell in us, letting the word of God richly dwell in us, doing everything with thanksgiving. It's always recognizing what Christ has done for us. I do hope we are a thankful people. So point three is, with thanksgiving, let Christ rule in everything. Let Christ rule in everything. Look with me in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which we are called to in one body. Think of all the things that you try to implement today in your life to bring peace. I have a, uh, like, a, like a roll-on from Young Living that says peace and calming, and I can roll it on my wrist. And like in, for seven minutes, I'm like, I'm at peace, right? And then it fades off. Well, the type of peace that he's talking about is recognizing that Christ calms the mind and he's saying let it rule that rule that word in the greek means to umpire let christ umpire what is true and what is not what is a ball and what is a strike right let this sit on you let the fact that the blood of christ has reconciled you and it's brought peace let the fact that your conscience is now new and and made new in him philippians 4 7 and that in every circumstance, we have peace because Christ rules us and we're never, not outs- we're never outside of the hand of God, ever. Let this do work on you and we're to do it in one body, one body. There's an infamous monk throughout church history that wanted to be so virtuous that he went out to a field and he lived in the equivalent of a cardboard box. And he just deprived himself from all the things of the world. And he wanted to be found holy before God. But the problem is God's means for holiness are found in the body. We put these things on and then we grow in sacrifice as Christ has sacrificed for us. We grow in kindness as God has been kind to us. So if no one is around, how do you grow in these things? We do this in the body. Now, there's a difference between the body and community. Let me just say that. This was brought up in our sermon prep meeting this week. Community is kind of a buzzword today. We want to have community together. And I, and I agree, we do want to have community together. But community can also be a come and go thing. The body is tied together with ligaments and marrow and has bones in it and we're together. So when slander or malice or lying rise up, the body is injured. But when we put these things on together, beloved, the grace of God, the character of God explode from within us. And this is what God wants for us as his people. Notice with me in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which also leads to thanksgiving. So the word of Christ is the scriptures, and we know that the scriptures are not only inerrant, They're infallible, but they're sufficient for us. And we are to know the scriptures in such a way that we are to, look what it says, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We are to teach each other these things. Yes, pastors have the responsibility to teach corporately the things of God. And we're called to do that faithfully. But we all have a responsibility to teach and admonish one another. This is what Christ has for us. This is the same language Paul uses in Colossians 1.28 when he says we warn everyone, we teach everyone, and the end goal of that is that everyone would be found mature in Christ. Now, beloved, we do this in all humility, meekness, patience, but we are to teach and admonish one another. Admonish means to impart 
understanding through correction. Now, I get it. We're Americans, and we're individual, and we like to be in our individuality. We don't like people in our kitchen. We don't like people telling us that our pots are dirty. But the way that God has designed it is that we would be so close to each other in life that we would know God's word individually, and that we would have the the courage to share, teach, and admonish one another in the word of God and have the courage to receive it from brothers and sisters. And this is how we are to grow. This is the community that we live in, in all humility and meekness. This is where we forgive each other. This is where we admonish and teach and love each other here. Now, notice with me in verse 16, the specific example that Paul gives for teaching and admonishing. Now, he just said teaching and admonishing. He could have said preaching, but he actually says something else. Look with me in verse 16. He says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We lift our voices in this room together. We teach and admonish one another when we are together through song. You probably don't realize how much doctrine and theology you've learned because of music. Good and bad, by the way. But so much doctrine you've learned because of music. Our mouths are meant to praise God, to worship God. God. And this is what we're to use our mouths for, not malice, slander, and lying to one another. This is to encourage us when we gather together. Now, we have a rich variety listed here. There's psalms, there's hymns, and there's spiritual songs that Paul mentions. But I want us to look back up into the text where it says the word of Christ So the psalms, spiritual songs, and the hymns that we sing, they're tied to the word of Christ. Uh, We don't sing songs that are not tied to the word of Christ. Did you know every single week, Kurt Boss comes in on Monday and he begins looking in the text. He begins sitting down in sermon prep meeting and we begin to divide the word of God. And from the call to worship to the benediction and every song chosen in between and the word itself, the passage that we preach, they're all connected to the word of God. And we make sure that this corporate worship experience that we have, that the word of God is dwelling amongst us, teaching and admonishing us. The music's not very loud here because we want to hear each other sing. We want to make sure that we recognize that the truth of God is dwelling amongst us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so when we sing, we want to sing the word of Christ. We don't sing anything outside of that. And we hold this together. When I, I might have a really weak day where I'm coming into the pulpit tired and hurt. But then I hear you sing, and it's reminding me of the truths of God's word. This isn't just a a me and Jesus time. This is a corporate time. This is a time that we have the lights on in here so you can see uh, see one another sing, hear one another sing. Now, look with me what it says in the text. In verse 16. It says, uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. But that teaching and admonishing is for one another. So we sing to God and we sing for one another. I love when we sing loud and praise our Lord. 
Now, just some examples. Three songs that we sing. In 2003, the song, Jesus, Thank You, that we just sang. Uh, we thank God. That was written 20 years ago. It's from Romans 5. It's from Psalm 113, and it's, and it's from Ephesians 2. A Mighty Fortress is Our, is our God uh, is written in 1527. So that, that, that's not yesterday. And that's Psalm 46. So we sing that song. I Will Wait for You. You guys know that song? You love that song? Just written a few years ago. That's from Psalm 130. The songs that we sing are from the word of God, meant to dwell richly amongst us. It is amazing, is it not? That have you ever been around someone that has Alzheimer's at the end of life and they don't know your name, their children's name, but they can recall a song? It's like a song is an instrument that God uses to dwell within us that when we're having a weak moment on a Tuesday, we remember through song the praise of God and we hold fast to these things. Uh, Style of music will change. It has changed every decade forever, and it will continue to change. It will change in my lifetime here. There's no doubt about it. But the word of Christ does not change, and it is meant to dwell within us. And these are the things that we sing to God and for one another. A couple of things to apply in our lives for the word of God to dwell richly among us in this little section here. If you are a disciple of Christ, let the word of God dwell in you richly, treasuring, by treasuring the words of Christ. Do you treasure the words of Christ? Or when, you're, when you're thirsty, you go get water in the kitchen. When you're hungry, you go get a meal. When you are parched spiritually, where do you turn? Turn to the word of Christ and let it dwell richly in you. Uh, beloved, if you don't know how to study your Bible, that is okay. I don't want you to be ashamed in that. Talk to a brother or a sister or talk to a pastor about that. We'd love to teach you how to read the word of God, just some practical things to think through. What is God saying here about himself? What is God saying here about my sin? We'd love to sit down and talk to you about that so that the word of God can richly dwell within you. And there's a second application as to why that's also important. Because the disciple is meant to share the word of God with his brother and his sister. You're not just to know the word of God by yourself, but you're supposed to teach and admonish. And so we want to set aside time to know God's word so that we are intentional to teach and to proclaim God's word one to another. It might be, and this is just a reality, it might be that we don't know how to share the gospel with, the, with those who don't know Christ because we haven't learned to share it with each other first. And we are called to teach and admonish one another. And then thirdly, last application in this, in this little third section is we worship Christ together. Beloved, when we sing, when we sing, sing loudly to God so that the brothers and sisters can hear you sing, so that we can hold these things together. Sing by faith, knowing that the things of God are true in Christ. This is what we are to do and we do this together. We're to believe these things together, to participate in these things together, putting on these things together in corporate worship and when we gather in our small groups as well. And look how he ties it all together, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there it is, giving thanks again. You remember that aim that Paul has is to be, for every Christian to be found mature in him, this is what Christian maturity looks like. That everything done, 
word, deed, song, teaching, everything is meant to give thanks to God. It's done in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. So you might be going, well, that might be impossible. Well, that shows how far we have to go to maturity. We, We recognize that we don't have it all yet, but God is graciously working through the Spirit and sanctifying us into his image. And one final note on singing. I just saw a great kind of tweet this week, I guess, by Gavin Ortland. A people know what kind of theology you have or what doctrines you believe in based on the songs that you sing. But they know how much you believe it based on how you sing. So I do hope that we're a congregation that sings loudly the word of Christ. We allow this teaching and this admonishing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly so that we're brought to maturity in the Son. Now, if you are a Christian, if you're a member of the church, I want you to know that this is a lot of information today. Paul just is packing a punch in a really small little text. But this is our life. He's describing our life as the Christian. And so we put these things on. We teach and we admonish. We hold to Christ as our anchor, the one who chose us, loved us, and made us holy from the foundation of the world. And then we live these things out. I want that to be in your heart today as the word of God has been preached. I pray that it is received and begins to germinate and begins to grow and begins to give you encouragement. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we recognize the need that we have Father, we can't do any of these things apart from the Spirit. We can't do any of these things without putting on Christ who has put us in him. So help us to rest there, to find strength there, Lord. Grow us up into a beautiful body of Christ, Lord, that is on display, that is exploding with these virtues amongst us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.